A History of Light for the Artist by W.C. Turk Part 4 The Bronze Age Bronze was the next great technological leap following, and more importantly, because of settled agriculturalists. Bronze is an alloy primarily made from copper, hardened by the addition of tin, aluminum, and other metals. The oldest known bronze artifacts dates to the 5th millennium BC in modern-day Iran, within just a few thousand years of the advent of farming and settled communities. The technology spread around the planet. Foil masks and other artifacts discovered at Plochnik in southern Serbia date to around 4000 BC and perhaps as early as 4500 BC. The production of bronze in the Balkans lasted about 500 years before a general collapse of local civilization during the 5th millennia BC interrupted the practice. By 3300 BC, bronze appears to have risen more or less simultaneously in the eastern Mediterranean and the Indian subcontinent. By 1700 BC, bronze was in use in China. Despite humanity's obsession with warfare and a focus on bronze artifacts of war, the vast majority of products were not war-related at all, but ranged from utensils and tools to boat staples and jewelry. Without farming, no bronze. Without metallurgy, no Greeks, Romans, Genghis Khan, China, or Islam. Without any of those empires and their wisest thinkers and scholars, no Galileo, Picasso, or Indonesian painter Mokhtar Apin, and certainly no James Webb Telescope. It took bronze several thousand years to proliferate around the world. Well-established trade and commerce routes, however, disrupted supplies of tin from around the Mediterranean and as far away as Great Britain and Afghanistan. It appears that with the discovery and invention of bronze, ancient metallurgists experimented with other types of metal. Iron beans found at Gerge on the Lower Nile River in Egypt date to around 3200 BC. It was the lower melting point of copper and tin at 1985 degrees Fahrenheit or 450 degrees Celsius respectively that put bronze within the capability of late Neolithic hearths. Iron's melting point at 2800 degrees Fahrenheit remained beyond the capability of those hearths for several thousand years. The decline of the Minoan Empire between 1450 BC and 1100 BC would precipitate a cascade of historical events that would erase the older order and introduce the Iron Age and change the course of history. That coincides with a general collapse and upheaval of civilization and a severe disruption of trade experienced as far east as China occurring around 1200 BC. That disruption, in part, may have had a cosmic component. Alan Peatfield from the University College Dublin describes in a paper titled 1200 BC War, Climate Change, and Cultural Catastrophe. He cited this curious item, quote, the existence of an 18-year-long growth downturn from 1159 to 1141 BC in Irish bog oaks has served to focus attention in the mid-12th century BC. The environmental effect can be traced in other tree ring chronologies and may have been at least hemispheric in extent. In searching for possible causes, it is notable that both the Chinese and Greeks have seminal battles 
namely the Battle of Mu and the Battle of Troy, both set traditionally in the 12th century BC. What singles out these quote-unquote battles is that both independently involve supernatural beings, sky gods, and mortals. An obvious question is whether there is a message in these clearly unreal battles. To state the question, do these ancient stories hint that there was a cosmic cause for the mid-12th century environmental events? Close quote. We shall examine this period in more detail shortly. Peatfield does not provide a source for a cosmic contribution to what was clearly a lasting event across much of the Northern Hemisphere, at least. Effects of this prehistoric dark period were felt around the Mediterranean and across Europe. Peatfield cites the abandonment of Tara Hill, north of current-day Ireland, around this time. But in 2021, researchers at Jordan's Tel al-Hammam excavation project published an article in Nature. Quote, a Tunguska-sized airburst destroyed Tal el-Hammam, a Middle Bronze Age city in the Jordan Valley near the Dead Sea. The team cited evidence for a comet or asteroid strike that destroyed the ancient city of Sodom around 650 BC. Among the evidence was a sudden and pervasive superheated fire and complete destruction of virtually all buildings and mineral deposits consistent with cosmic strikes. Whatever the calamity which, which befell Sodom, it also destroyed its significant agricultural base instantly. Genesis chapter 19, verses 24 and 25. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, including all those living in those cities and also the vegetation of the land. It would seem lately that every environmental change in ancient and prehistory is ascribed to a comet or asteroid strike. And that may well prove true. Objects the size of a football stadium capable of doing significant damage strike the planet on average every 2,000 years or so. Smaller objects the size of a bus burn up in our atmosphere at least once annually. There is physical evidence to support the idea of a cosmic connection to abrupt changes in Earth's climate as well as disasters like the kind which destroyed Sodom. Like everyone who investigates prehistory, we must rely on three types of evidence such as historical documentation, archaeological evidence, and chronometric or predominantly radiocarbon dating. After 3100 years of history, at least these three offer scant evidence to adequately decipher causality. Since no cosmic evidence has been found capable of such a long and enduring upheaval and the evidence of the catastrophic eruption at Thera would have been relatively short-lived in climatological terms, they can be discounted to a point. Clearly though, environmental change, often abrupt, has driven human social and cultural innovation and evolution. As we have seen, the adoption of agriculture and bronze technologies required thousands of years to proliferate. The Minoan civilization ascended to power off the heritage of the agriculturalists and their neighbors in Iran who apparently invented bronze. The Minoans moved across the Mediterranean, establishing themselves in such a way as to monopolize or control sea trade routes. 
That created, as we will see later, a seemingly benevolent order. Beginning with a devastating eruption at Thera, which destroyed a key eastern Mediterranean port and sent a tsunami estimated as high as 200 feet across the Cyprus homeland, the decline and resulting so-called Dark Age of war, violence, and migration around the Mediterranean and across Europe and the steppes, this author believes, was the inevitable and painful realignment of order in an astounding political, economic, and social power vacuum. By the 5th millennium BC, farming had taken hold throughout much of the world to varying degrees. It seems to have arisen in the American Southwest about the time that it appeared in China and Anatolia. About the same time, as a consequence of farming and stable settled societies, two other technologies appeared, both of which would have profound implications towards the invention of art and the telescope. First, as we have seen, the advent of bronze, that simple alloy of naturally occurring tin and copper. Tin and copper are similar in that they are both eminently malleable, but bronze was hardly the only technological advance. It is telling that the bronze period, too often characterized by weaponry, is indemnified as an age, while the arguably more significant advent of writing is relegated to a historical addendum, folded scornfully within or as a footnote to other more paternalistic technologies. Perhaps one is more directly associated with our obsession around warfare, while the other most often represents its antipathy. One is individualistic by nature, the lone hunter slash warrior with a spear or axe, while the other defines community, the antithesis of top-down and violence-defined power structures. One is potentially reductive to society, while the other illustrates and supports our universal paradigm of illumination. Quote, man reading should be a man intensely alive. The book shall be a ball of light in one's hand, said the American poet Ezra Pound, born October 30th, 1885, and died November 1st, 1972. But then again, it was the late Yugoslav writer Danilo Kish who expounded upon the idea, reminding that, quote, reading of many books brings wisdom, and the reading of one book brings ignorance armed with rage and hatred, helping to prove the rule. What Pound and Kish were driving at in the context of this narrative was that ideas and facts take on the role of the photon, falling singularly upon the darkness of the human mind. Gradually, they accumulate, displacing ignorance. Shadowy ignorance encouraged by just one photon, one fact, one book, against the daylight illumination of many photons, many facts, many books. This was the summation of Plato's Allegory of the Cave from his larger work, Republic, written between 520 and 514 BC. The invention of writing and literature arguably was a monumental leap forward for the illumination of the communal consciousness of humanity. Writing was essential to our intellectual, philosophical, and spiritual ascendancy as a species, as we shall see. Along with the broader arts are the measure and physical manifestations of that evolutionary driver, culture. This part of the story, our foundational perspective, has to do with illumination and its place in determining reality. The concept of illumination corresponds not only to the arts, but to human knowledge in general. Without it, and without grasping the basic tenets of defining reality, 
there is no deconstructive ascendancy towards, sir, realism. It is no coincidence, in the opinion of this author, that the concept of light and illumination in reference to human knowledge and understanding is deeply rooted in our history, because they are in fact one and the same. I'll stop short of wading too deep into philosophy, but Aristotle believed that light emanated from the eye to reflect off objects. In the Allegory of the Cave, Aristotle's mentor, Plato, describes the world between those who only perceive a world of shadows as opposed to those who comprehend the real world in the sunlight outside the manufactured shadows upon cave walls. That's important because it indicates that human beings comprehend the value of illumination and that it is deeply and intimately connected, perhaps universally connected, not only to our understanding of the universe, but to our connection to that universe from which we arose. We can think of it as a universal paradigm. As a species, without exception, we frame the world by these universal patterns, utilizing comprehensions of light and fluid dynamics, dash illumination, and the sea. This from Cold, House by the Sea, lyrics by Mean Mary James. The notes that my fingers play take me far away to a world that's black. Memories that enslaved in 40 feet of wave, they come rushing back. I swam alone in the night, far from sight, a fool so bold, a secret rendezvous with the deep blue that turned me. My fingers lose their way, I hear the song still play, and you speak my name. I step from the piano, into shadow, and you do the same. In the shadow, in the night, I wash over you like moonlight. You put your arms around me and you shiver, like I'm a river or the sea. 2,000 years after Plato's Allegory of the Cave, Mahatma Gandhi, October 2nd, 1869 to January 30th, 1948, put it this way, Truth is by its nature self-evident. As soon as you remove the cobwebs of ignorance that surround it, it shines clear. The reality of learning and knowledge is properly interpreted in precisely the way a photon a collection of photons illuminates and reveals the place of that illumination, as well as its source. In, in looking for universal design paradigms, what is at first merely a collection of patterns like the spiral or ellipse, suddenly opens up revealing the grand universal connections to all things in existence. Concepts become patterns. These patterns represent fractals observed all around us and in every DNA. There is growing evidence that our universe might be a fractal. So in a very real sense, given all that we know about both the photon and the idea are directly relatable. The same is true, as we shall see, for visual art, literature, and music. Back to our nascent writers. It is around 3500 BC the first documented surviving writing appears. Though, like bronze, most likely, the evolution of these technologies evolved throughout the course of human history. It seems that writing was invented to facilitate accounting, to establish concepts of ownership, and perhaps even debt. In a June 2021 paper published in the journal Nature, Francesco De Rico, an archaeologist at the University of Bordeaux in France, looked again at part of a hyena bone uncovered in the 1970s. Derico believed that a series of etchings by Neanderthals represented a rudimentary system of accounting. 
the ability to recognize numbers, a characteristic called subitizing, has been observed in fowl, insects, and fish, meaning that the origins of numbers and math date back 3.8 billion years when the branches of those species began to differentiate. But accounting is one thing. The abstraction of literature is quite another. As a species, we are tied inextricably to both. In looking around the planet at contemporary indigenous cultures, the universality and importance of storytelling traditions becomes quickly apparent. Such traditions are all too evident on cave walls dating back at three caves in Spain at La Pasiega, Ardales, and Maltravesio, as far back as 67,700 years ago. Storytelling measured in degrees can be found in the animal and insect kingdom as well. The so-called honeybee dance is truly a storytelling activity and alludes to the possibility of a much deeper biological basis for the far more and deliberate, but no less instinctual, human trait of storytelling. The honeybee dance is the only language of this sort known in nature outside our human species. At a very basic level, the honeybee dance, which communicates a story about the direction and distance of nectar or pollen to the hive, is pure insect theater. In 1973, Dr. Carl von Frisch received the Nobel Prize in Medicine for his research in interpreting the dance language of honeybees. There is no direct link between honeybees and humans. That split took place likely about 3.8 billion years ago, as we've said. Called the last universal common ancestor, or LUCA, these simple bacteria developed DNA which make up all living things on the planet. The ensuing 3.8 billion years allowed for the incredible diversity we see today. It would be a curious thing if we found only storytelling imperatives in honeybees alone. But what exactly are we looking at in the exploration of storytelling outside our own species? We have only to look at the species with the largest brain on our planet with a highly developed neocortex. Again, the neocortex controls consciousness, thought, and language. I'm of course speaking about our friends the whales. Humpback whales engage in a form of communication called singing. Embedded within these songs are repeating patterns like the refrain in music. They are complex lasting as much as 30 minutes and can be heard underwater up to 100 miles away. But we have no idea what they mean. Different pods of killer whales have a dialect unique to each pod. Calves are born with limited vocal ability that grows and becomes more complex with age. There is evidence that dolphins and perhaps sperm whales have monikers used to identify one another. Cats offer themselves to sniff or rub against other cats in a rudimentary sort of communication, revealing intention or where they have been. The ancient story of the Great Flood, which is found in disparate cultures around the world, might be a storytelling relic by our Ice Age ancestors lamenting sea level rise, erasing lowland coastal areas, and disconnecting tribes or people from ancestral homelands. Such a scenario, set at the end of the Ice Age, roughly 11,700 years ago, is the only commonality between peoples with great flood stories from Mesoamerica to India, the ancient Greeks, indigenous Australians, the Philippines, and Malaysia. The story 
of a great flood is first written down in the Epic of Gilgamesh, dating to the 7th century BC, between 100 and 400 years before the Abrahamic story of Genesis. There is evidence from cave paintings in which animals no longer inhabiting geographical regions associated with cave art describes their post-flood lament or reverence for disappeared animals. It is important, however, to deviate from artistic and storytelling narratives to point out the first writing had nothing to do with art or storytelling. Writing at least what remains to us in clay tablets from what is today modern-day Iraq was actually quite mundane. As we have seen from the archaeological record, it would appear that writing was invented for accounting and not for the expressive muses of humanity. That would come sometime later. For larger societies to communicate beyond a small clan or group or to create lasting communication, accounting, issue resolution, and recollection, the invention of writing was a necessity. In Mesopotamia, it was cuneiform writing and later hieroglyphs in Egypt. Letters, numerals, and images were carved or pressed into stone clay, likely because those materials were plentiful, durable, and cheap. Those first clay stones were readily available along the banks of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, along with reeds that could be cut to serve as some sort of cuneiform stylus to press into soft clay tablets. From the Sumerian poet Enmerkar and the Lord Arada, circa 1800 BC. His speech was substantial and its contents extensive. The messenger whose mouth was heavy was not able to repeat it. Because the messenger whose mouth was tired was not able to repeat it, the Lord of Kalaba padded some clay and wrote the message as if on a tablet. Formerly, the writing of the messages on clay was not established. Now, under that sun and on that day, it was indeed so. The Lord of Kalaba inscribed the message like a tablet. It was just like that. The messenger was like a bird, flapping its wings. He raged forth like a wolf following a kid. This is a far better read than accounting texts listing bales of wheat, the number of sheep, and so forth from the 3rd millennium BC. Though we find the first surviving samples of writing on papyrus dating to the 3rd millennium BC, it doesn't take a great deal of imagination to understand that the work of early writers utilizing organic materials like bark papers, pressed reeds, or papyrus were long ago lost to history. In leaky, rodent-plagued primitive buildings, their organic durability was dubious. Clay and stone information, whether on walls or tablets, could be seen as a commodity and may have helped anchor and strengthen communities. The first literature appears to us from Sumer in what is today present-day Iraq. It comes to us in the magnificent story to begin all stories. The first author, in Heduana, was a woman. She was the high priestess of the ancient Mesopotamian goddess of desire and fertility, Inanna. From the start, literature was grounded in the grander experience of mankind. Not even the lofty position of sovereigns and royalty, their power, ruthlessness, and deification could dissuade the true illuminating calling of literature. Like the visual arts and theater, the target was always realism, and by extension, surrealism. Like that first oxygen-accreting cyanobacteria, 
the ability to render realism would prove a long and arduous evolutionary process. Just as the first rudimentary lenses, which we will come to shortly, were about the real. Getting there, unfortunately, would take the better part of the next 290 generations. Illumination was a process, and that process required time, revolution, and most especially, the persecution of the writer. Yes, I said, persecution. On an Akkadian relief circa 2350 to 2150 BC, roughly 1200 years after the first appearance of cuneiform writing, accounting, the goddess Inanna fully embodies her mythic charge. Her face and attractive features are joyful, even mischievous. She is scantily clad. A bare leg extends from beneath a tiered gown fastened at the left shoulder. The goddess appears to wear a tall, stylized headdress with strands of long braided hair extending from beneath to flow upon her shoulders. Wings extend from her back. Simple bracelets adorn her wrists. The Sumerians worshipped Inanna perhaps as early as the end of the 5th millennium BC. She is our first recorded god. The Assyrians called her Ishtar. She was worshipped for almost 7,000 years. The so-called cult of Ishtar surviving in parts of Mesopotamia until the 18th century AD. That is an astounding 4,500 years longer than Judaism. 5,000 years longer than Christianity and more than 5,500 years longer than Islam. Not to diminish any of those great religions, but historically speaking, when it comes to religion, the rule of three is, well, a myth. There is but one scant image of our first author and Heduana, taken from a carved alabaster disc. It shows the high priestess dressed much the same as Inanna, wearing an elegant tiered gown with long braided hair. She is ubiquitous among three women of apparent lesser rank, with short cut hair and simpler gowns. Certainly a social order had been established and stratified between royalty and the rest of Mesopotamian society within just a few thousand years from those first farmers. It is interesting to note the revered place and Heduana held in the social order, but also the prominence literacy held among women in Sumer. But there is something of even greater significance in the writings of Enheduanna, at least for our story. Illumination is unrelenting. In Heduanna's poem, Inanna Prefers the Farmer, tells the tale of the goddess's lover, Dumuzid, competing with Enkimdu, the god of farming, for Inanna's hand in marriage. Enkimdu is quiet and peaceful, persistent in his labor of love, laudable and teachable qualities for the everyman farmer. These are essential qualities for an agrarian society more beholden to climate than to the still somewhat nascent technology of farming. Rather like our little piggy who builds a brick house that the big wolf was unable to huff and puff and blow down. These are imperative qualities because a single poor harvest might imperil an entire community. In that context, the simple farmer is more important than the soldier, and in some respects, the king. That last point is fundamental. It describes a sea change which can only be ascribed to settled, agri-based societies. Where for thousands of years on cave paintings and upon the walls of the first settled communities, around 6500 BC, the armed hunter predominates. In urban Sumer in 3500 BC, the farmer has achieved greater prominence. 
cattle is domesticated, the farmer would retain that position for much of the next 2,000 years, until the Odyssey of Homer. And it makes sense. A successful crop was everything to those Neolithic and Bronze Age communities. A single bad harvest caused by blight or drought, floods or locusts could imperil or wipe out a community. Kings and sovereigns were humbled, at least, to that ever-present possibility. This is the context of a story in which there is an honesty and enlightened intimacy throughout. This excerpt from The Curse of Akkad reveals a greater connection and empathy which would remain latent for the next 3,000 years or so, at least as far as we know from the surviving archaeological record. For the first time since cities were built and founded, the great agricultural tracts produced no grain. The inundated tracts produced no fish. The irrigated orchards produced neither syrup nor wine. The gathered clouds did not rain. The mascarum did not grow. At that time, one shekel's worth of oil was only one half quart. The story was accompanied by music. One shekel's worth of grain was only one half quart. These sold at prices in the markets of all cities. He who slept on the roof died on the roof. He who slept in the house had no burial. People were flailing themselves from hunger. And Heduana, daughter of King Sargon of Akkad, was the first known author and perhaps songwriter. It is likely that the story which I just read was sung or chanted to the music of lutes, lyres, percussion instruments, and wind instruments like flutes and horns. And Heduana's father, Sargon, was perhaps the son of a priestess, inscribing on a cuneiform tablet that my priestly mother conceived me, secretly brought me to birth, set me in an ark of bulrushes, made fast my door with pitch. She consigned me to the river, which did not overwhelm me. The river brought me to Aki, the farmer who brought me up as his son. That legend is hauntingly similar to the Moses story in Exodus 1600 years later. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could not hide him any longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeves by the bank of the Nile. The comparison between these two texts, written many centuries apart, describes very different social orders and intentions. Exodus and much of the Bible are very much top-down narratives, save for the teachings of Jesus, while the works of Enheduanna portray a more egalitarian social structure, and which is better and more fully illustrates the real day-to-day -day reality of the broadest accounting of humanity, or the royal order, or that of the common citizen. Certainly the top-down narrative establishes a hierarchy and a system of control, while the former paints a portrait of egalitarianism, without substantial daylight between the various strata of Sumerian society. The answer to which narrative would prevail would preoccupy art and literature for the next several thousand years. Indeed, it still faces those very same challenging questions. All of the amazing art, the first great cities and innovations were monumental leaps forward in human culture. And then, around 1180 BC, it all came crashing down across the Mediterranean basin. Exactly why and how and even the who was responsible still remains a mystery and the subject of heated debate. 
but there are tantalizing clues and modern comparisons that shed light on what has been called one of the greatest social catastrophes in history. Up next, part five, the collapse of civilization. You're listening to A History of Light for the Artist by W.C. Turk.